Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Family, police and friends all searched for Kirstie that night down the riverbank. They called out her name. They went right through um, what was quite a bushy area on the on the riverbed. Um, but there was no sign of the dog. Um, but then all of a sudden, first thing the next morning when searches start out, within minutes, there was Abby, uh, Kirsty's black Labrador. Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan, host of the Daily Afternoons program on RNZ, and this is Crimes NZ, where I talk to people who are connected in one way or another with serious crimes that have happened in New Zealand. In this episode, I talk to journalist Blair Enzor, who recently completed an investigative piece on the Kirsty Bentley murder case. So Martin and I sit together in a pod at the press newsroom here in Christchurch, um, and we've worked on a few things together. Um, we did a podcast on uh, the murder of John Reynolds in 1996. He was a scrap metal dealer. Um, and then uh, I did some work on uh, the murder of Angela Blackmore, which was a 1995 case here in Christchurch, a young mother that was stabbed to death in her home. And then I was sort of scratching around for another cold case to look at, and the logical progression was Kirsty Bentley. Um, and Martin has a real forensic eye for stuff. He's done a lot of stuff around David Bain, as many people will be aware. So yeah. I um, decided to work with him on it. So yeah, we, we got cracking into it late last year and, and you know, spent several months sort of going over a case that's been well traversed by the media and trying to find a new way into things. Why has this case been so interesting to media? Uh, it will, I mean, it happened on New Year's Eve 1998, right? Which was a year after um, Ben Smart and uh, Olivia Hope uh-huh. um, disappeared from Furno Lodge. Um, and, you know, there was huge interest in that case. And then suddenly, yet again, we've got another girl that's gone missing on New Year's Eve. Um, and, I mean, she was, by all accounts, from a reasonably normal home. Um she was a young girl. She was, you know, uh, for want of a better word, a reasonably uh, good-looking young girl. Um, she didn't appear to have any skeletons in her closet. She was, a, you know, by, viewed by all her friends as a, a nice, pleasant young girl who kept to herself and had a really tight circle of friends. So I guess just vanishing from, you know, on a, on a really hot summer's afternoon um, whilst out walking her dog was just, so extraordinary for a small town like Ashburton, and it and it as 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 journalists know, um, anything that happens over that summer period is um, fairly well uh, forensically looked at by journalists because there's not a great deal else going on. Mm. You get um, sort of frozen in time, don't you, um, when you, you go missing like that, and um, and so we all probably think of Kirsty Bentley according to that one 
one particular photo of her. How have you worked out how old she would be now? She would be a year older than me, uh, which is thirty. She'd be thirty-seven. Mm. Uh, so I mean, for me, I'm, you look at her, and, and I've often thought, well, you know, that's she's she's lost a lot of stuff that I've I've seen over the years. So um, yeah, it, it makes things a little bit uh, closer to home when someone's yeah. of a similar age. Who are the key uh, characters in this story then? Well, so Kirsty lived uh, in a small red brick bungalow with her family just around the corner from where her dog uh, was found the morning after she disappeared. Um, and she lived there with her mother, Jill, uh, her father, John, and her brother, oh, sorry, her father, Sid, and her brother, John. Um, and so John was several years older than, than her. Um, and he was at university. Um, Sid uh, was a machinist at a um, local irrigation firm and Jill looked after someone with dementia. Um, and suspicion over the years, um, I mean, the last person to see John, uh, sorry, to see Kirsty was John. Um, he was at home on the afternoon she disappeared from, or she went out walking with the dog, if she indeed went out walking with the dog. And that's one thing I will stress here. There are very few definitives in this case. Um, you know, all we know is that Kirsty Bentley made a call at 2.38 p.m. on uh, New Year's Eve to her boyfriend's home, and he wasn't home, um, but his brother picked up the phone. So she leaves the property, um, or, you know, she hangs up and, and is, is said to have left the property. Uh, there are several sightings of her walking down a street uh, not far from her home. Um, and then after that, you know, what happened is... Uh, one of New Zealand's great mysteries. So as you say, very few definitives. Is that all we know then? A phone call? And why do we think that she took the dog for a walk uh, along the river? I mean, Kirsty was well known to take a dog for a walk. She Sometimes she'd take the dog several times a day down to the riverbank. Um, so if anyone knows Ashburton, she would turn right out of her, her property uh, on South Street and head down a street called Chalmers Ave towards the river. Um, but she was known to head in both directions when she reached the end. Um, but because she took the dog, dog for a walk so regularly, um, it, I think that, that impacted on police's ability to get reliable um, sightings of her that afternoon because, as we all know, a couple of days down the track, it's quite hard to tell yeah. when you've seen someone. Well, what about the dog? Was the dog found? So the dog was found the next morning, uh, about 9 a.m. So one of the, the the dog is one of the most troubling aspects of this case because um, the family searched, family, police, and friends all searched for Kirsty that night down the riverbank. They called out her name. They went right through um, what was quite a bushy area on the on the riverbed, um, but there was no sign of the dog. Um, but then all of a sudden, first thing the next morning, when searches start out within minutes, there was Abby, uh, Kirsty's black Labrador, tied to a tree uh, not far from the track that she was known to walk. Um, and then her underwear was found on a bush nearby. Um, and one of the unusual things about the dog was that it was tied in a way, in such a way that whoever had done it had to have unleashed the dog and then, you know, uh, loop the lead around the tree and then, and then reattach it. Uh, which would suggest that whoever did it, uh, did that, knew the dog, or the dog knew them. Mm. 
the body was found, uh, not for a couple of weeks. Was the body found near to where the dog was found? No, it was found um, about 40 minutes drive from Ashburton in, in the Rakai Gorge, which is quite a remote area inland. Um, and it was a pair of cannabis growers who found her body. Um, and, you know, police have said, and, and the way it was, it was, it was, it was placed in the fetal position uh, in a block of quite young pine trees uh, and covered with bracken and um, you know various other things they could have you know used to cover her. So they tried to hide it, but they whoever did it clearly doesn't have a huge amount of time. Otherwise, they probably would have tried to bury it. Uh, she was still fully clothed, um, except for her underwear, which were obviously back in Ashburton, um, and. Yeah, it just police would you know were quite open in saying that they felt that they that whoever had done this um, seemed to care about Kirsty. You know the way she was placed was almost reverent. And so, with that in mind, what do we deduce, Blair, from the fact that she was found fully clothed, but her underwear was found back uh, near this river in Ashburton, some some way away? Well, I guess it's hard to, to say because police have said that this they believe, and they've had international experts look at the scene where the dog was found, they believe that that scene was staged to look like an abduction. Um, the condition of the body was such that they were unable to determine whether Kirsty had been sexually assaulted. Um, so, and, and so that's why that dog scene becomes so important um, because... It just doesn't make sense if you've abducted someone to stage the scene to look like an abduction. And so people at home will have worked this out already, but I I guess that police started looking uh, at people close to Kirsty as as their lead suspects. And um, what did they find when they looked at, uh, I suppose, these two men in her life, her father and her older brother? Perhaps can you tell us a bit about her father first? And, and his movements on the day. Yeah, so Sid, um, he was an alcoholic, um, and he was no like uh, he was a ferocious drinker. Um, and he, on the day that Kirsty disappeared, he was late out of bed, uh, and he went to Christchurch, uh, where he ran a few errands. And then his initial account, he says that he he went to Littleton, uh, where he had a a cigarette or bought some bags and a, uh, a pie. And then he found himself heading from there directly home and he walked through the door shortly after 6 p.m. on the day that Kirsty disappeared. So that's several hours after she made that call to her boyfriend's house. Um, and very soon after that, um, Sid reports her missing to police. Um, by that stage, Jill um, and John had already been out for a look for Kirsty and hadn't found her, and Jill was becoming increasingly worried about where she was. Um, and then for the remainder of that evening, um, Sid says that he, uh, you know, he in his first statement, he went, um, he went out searching, uh, probably he went to Wakanui, which is about 15 minutes from the, from the Bentley home. He drove there. Uh, and then he searched an industrial area, um, and then after midnight, he and John were out searching alone between about 1 and 3 a.m. John, the older um, brother. John, the older brother. And 
yeah, by uh, the next morning, I mean, he was he was up early. People recall seeing him at the gate, and he was, you know, he was around when the dog was found. And by all accounts, his movements are fairly well catered for on the first. Um, but there are obviously some gaps there on um, on the night she went missing. But what really confounded things was that 18 months after Kirsty went missing, uh, Sid changed his version of events, or said that he'd banged his head on a cupboard. Uh, and that he'd had visions that he went to Wakanui Beach on the afternoon um, that Kirsty disappeared. So his new version of events had him leaving Christchurch about 2.30 p.m., um, and that's about an hour and a quarter drive from Christchurch to Ashburton, um, getting within about 30 seconds of the Bentley home and then heading to Wakanui Beach because he had a migraine and he wanted to head to the beach and you know just, just ride that out. Um, and so there were some sightings um, that had become problematic for Sid because he was seen in and around Ashburton around 4pm uh, where um, some people thought they saw him at Hotel Ashburton um, buying some cigarettes and there was a till receipt to back that up mm-hmm. um, which fitted with the new version of events that he gave. Um, so John... There are some slight changes in his statements, as um, Greg Williams, who was the second officer in charge, would say. I mean, and Greg has never hasn't said what those changes were, but John vehemently denies uh, any responsibility in his sister's death. Um, and he says that his father's put him in a terribly awkward position. Um, in saying that, though, Sid always denied his involvement as well until he died in, uh, I think it was 2015. Um, but another aspect of the case that's obviously raised a few eyebrows was the fact that Sid left John out of the will, um, or out of his will as well, and donated to all his uh, his money to the, the local church. Okay, what what was John up to uh, then on, on the day that uh, Kirsty went missing? By the way, if you've just tuned in, we're talking about the case of Kirsty Bentley. It's our weekly um New Zealand true crime feature, and we're, we're sort of talking about a couple of the people who became suspects in her disappear, disappearance and murder. Uh, older brother John, yeah, what was what was he doing that day? So older brother John, he'd gone to work in the morning and then returned home, uh, and he he took a phone call. Just sorry, my memory's a little hazy here, but I think he took a mm. phone call. Um, from Kirsty's boyfriend, which is why when Kirsty gets home, he says, "Give Graham offer the call." He's, which is Kirsty's boyfriend, give him a call. He's been in touch. Um, so John says that in his statement that he hears Kirsty comes come home and then goes and tells her to call Graham, and then he retreats to his bedroom where he's listening to music. He was um, John's got quite long hair, um, not naturally dark, but he dyed it dark because he didn't like to be sort of compared to Hanson, uh, the music group. <laughs> um, and so he's he's sitting in there listening away to music, and then the phone rings, I think, again, about 4.20 p.m. in the afternoon, and he says that it's at that point that he starts wondering where Kirsty is. Um, he, he, he thought she'd gone out to walk the dog, but it was uh, unusual for her to be away that long. She would usually only go for a sort of 45 minutes. Um so when his mother walks back through the door uh, shortly after 5 p.m., he he is out there to meet her and is telling her, you know, where the hell's Kirsty? Um, 
and he's he is a bit pissed off because we well, he says he's a bit pissed off because he's having to you know almost act as her answer service. Um, and then that's where the search goes from there. And then his statement, um, as I've said, you know, he heads out searching with friends, um, uh, with Kirsty's friends, and then he's out also um, alone with his father later on that evening. Uh, was the boyfriend ever a suspect? Look, I think Graham Offord was 15. He didn't have a driver's license. Uh, and for him to carry out such a sophisticated crime I mean if you want to call it sophisticated but for him to commit a crime like this just it just doesn't make any sense um, because he would he would have to kill Kirsty and then uh, bring someone else into it in order to get the body up to Rakaia Gorge okay. um, and that's a lot to do for a 15 year old anyone else any other names in the mix uh, police have got dozens of names that they've uh, got on their list of potential suspects, um, and Greg Merton, who is now the uh, officer in charge of the case, you know, is quite clear in saying that um, you know there are plenty of potential suspects, and he's looked at others in recent years, like he looked at the Wins shooter Russell Tully, um, and also at Jason Frandy, who killed a Czech hitchhiker. But he's ruled both of them out. But um, there are scores of people that could have committed this crime. But the problem for police is there's so little forensic evidence for them to link anyone to it. So we know for sure the father changed his story, though, huh? That's um, a bit of an indictment. But there's a number of reasons someone could change their story. Uh, you know, he, he's, as I've said previously, he was a notorious boozer. So, you know, we all know what alcohol can do to people's memories. Um so just because someone changes their story doesn't make them a killer. Mm. Um, there's no doubt that John and Sid are good suspects, um, but there is nothing linking them to the crime. So you have looked at this as closely as anyone, you and, and Martin. What's your theory? I don't really have a theory. <laughs> um, like I say, I think John and Sid are great suspects. I don't think it's a random uh sort of stranger abduction. Um, but equally, it could be someone, and I had an email from someone about this just the other day, who had a very detailed theory about who, how it could have been someone who lived um, on, A, the street that she walked down, Chalmers Ave, who had observed her walking to the river day in, day out, and somehow lured her into the house, and, and that's how it went from there. It could have been, you know, someone on a, another street that she'd walked down nearby. Um, to me, it had to be someone that, knew Kirsty and her routine because otherwise they wouldn't know to place the dog where it was along the route that she usually walked. Uh -huh. um, but that, the whole staging of the scene is very interesting. Like there's, there's more to it just than, you know, oh, um, like when they talk about staging, there was no evidence on Kirsty's uh, clothing when they looked at it forensically that she had walked that river track that afternoon. There was no sign of a scuffle on the riverbed, oh, sorry, on the river track or around where the dog was found. Um, there was no forensic evidence on the underwear suggesting it had touched the ground. Um, it, it's just a, yeah, it's a, it's a extremely confusing crime scene. All of which could suggest that something had happened at home or near home or somewhere that wasn't related to her walking path and 
and then later the person involved set it up as if she had taken that walk. Absolutely, yep, yep. Uh, but police have never established where Kirsty was killed. Uh, Is that unusual, by the way, to have a, a, a murder like this? And it seems like the police have no leads. I think it would be fair to say there are very, very, very few cases like this in New Zealand where there are there is such a lack of evidence, um, and that's not through a lack of trying by police. I mean, Greg Williams and John Winter and Greg Merton, now later in the piece, have turned over a lot of rocks trying to find out who did this. Um, and, you know, here we are in 2020, and we're not really that much closer to, to solving it. Did you talk to the mother? Yeah, I've been dealing with Jill. Uh, Jill now lives in Invercargill with her new partner. Um, but she doesn't like to talk on the phone anymore, so we basically talked entirely via social media. Um, and she keeps quite weird hours, so I would talk to her later in the day and send her a barrage of questions, and she'd come back with her her own theories and, and you know, she, she would accept it if police came to her with evidence and said that John and Sid were involved. Um, but, you know, she's had the theory put to her by Greg Williams that John, you know, for whatever reason, lashed out at Kirsty, and then Sid came home, helped him clean it up and then disposed of the body while John, you know, put on a front. But she doesn't buy that theory because she doesn't think the timings are uh, broad enough. Um, and there is no doubt that those timings, if that is a scenario, if it all happens between the hours of 3 and 6 p.m., there's a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, if Sid comes home uh, and helps clean up, he's got to make a very quick decision about how he is going to dispose of a daughter. Um, and no matter what his relationship was like with his daughter, and there's nothing to suggest that it wasn't good, um, that would be hugely confronting. Um, and then you've got to work out how you're going to do this without leaving any evidence, and then you're going to stage a crime scene as well. You mentioned that uh, Kirsty's father has died. What about her older brother? Where is he now? He lives overseas. Uh, and look, he answered questions from us. Uh, but we never spoke to him on the phone, so it was all done via email. Um, but it wasn't like he shied away from answering any questions either. Um, so um, he, like, I think John is quite an interesting character. Uh, he's done, done or is doing a master in astronomy. Um, quite uh, an introverted guy. Um, you know, he spent a lot of time in his room with the curtains drawn at school. Oh, sorry, at home whilst he was at school. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just that it, it would have, obviously, if he's he's been involved, it would weigh fairly heavily on him. Uh, any chance we'll get a breakthrough? Any, any chance that we'll ever find out what happened? I think that um, based on, you know, recent cases, you only have to look at Angela Blackmore. You know, last year, police arrested a couple of people in connection with her death. Um, there were a couple of arrests in relation to the Red Fox murder, uh, which happened in the 80s uh, not that long ago. You know, you know, whilst all this time goes by, certainly the families don't give up hope. And every time one of those cold cases gets solved, you know, it gives them uh, a glimmer of 
of hope that that, that their own case will be solved. But to me, the Kirsty case is a little is a tough one. I, I kind of feel like you need a confession. There is no evidence, or certainly forensic evidence that that is you know appears to be available to link anyone to the crime. Um, so it's it's a it's, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't hold great hopes. What's the police theory? Have we talked about that? Do they have a theory? Yeah. Well, see, Greg Williams's theory, as I discussed before, was you know that John uh, kills Kirsty and then Sid comes home okay. uh, and helps clean it up. Yeah. Mm. Have you talked to any of her friends, Kirsty's friends? Yep. Yeah. So I mean that we traversed a lot of people when we did this. We went through the original investigation team. We door knocked people in streets, and we went back to Kirsty's friends. Um, and there are a number of them, um, and they all still feel it pretty keenly. You know, um, it's amazing how an event like this 20 odd years ago still sticks with them. Um, and everyone I visited had some sort of Kirsty memorabilia, whether that's a toy, you know, scrapbooks with news clippings, her funeral video. Um, and you start talking to them, and they, you know, tears are not far away. Um, so they'd all dearly love, love to see the case solved. Uh, a couple of people have mentioned a truck. Was there a truck involved or, or sighted? There's a green comma van um, that police spent thousands of hours trying to track down but never did. Um, Sid drove a white Ford truck um, and there were potential sightings of that in, uh, on the route to Rakai Gorge on the afternoon that Kirsty disappeared. Um, but none of them were solid enough to say, yes, no, that was Sid. Um, so look there are plenty of people out there with plenty of theories about this case um, and many of them are very valid theories you know, we've been contacted by numerous people since writing this piece who've, who've got their own ideas about what happens uh, and you know there were sightings apparently of Sid on the day after uh, Kirsty disappeared up in the Gorge area but we've been back and checked on that and police are confident that uh, that Sid's movements on the 1st of January are accounted for. Um, so, and they, they definitely looked really hard at, at other suspects. There was a guy called Charlie Smith who changed, who, who painted his vehicle after the, the murder and was said to have boasted about being involved. Um, but, you know, nothing ever came of that. Um, so, yeah, there were numerous vehicles, sightings of numerous vehicles were appealed for, and, and a, you know, a lot of them were ruled out. I guess as a dad, occasionally a pretty hard case for you to cover and, and read about and, and talk about. Oh, look, I think all of these cases have their, you know, things that uh, you know are close to home in some way. Um, I guess that's why the, the wider public has an interest in them as well. You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. You can find more episodes like this on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you catch your favourite podcasts. Or head to the RNZ podcast page, where you'll also find the award-winning RNZ podcast series Gone Fishing and lots of other great podcasts. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 